find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Addicted to Crime podcast. I'm your host Shelby and today I'm going to talk to you about the unsolved Scottish Bible John murders. That's right, today we are traveling to Scotland to talk about their biggest, most famous case. Let's dive right in. for another spooky and funny podcast to add to your rotation check out anything bones now part of the pod moth network hey boneheads i'm sophie schwartz and i'm caitlin hart and we are the hosts of anything bones the podcast where we talk about bones and bone related topics so what are bone related topics Thank you for asking, Caitlin. This can be anything from mausoleums to murderers, famous skeletons to cadaver dogs, bone churches, mummies, serial killers. You'll hear about them all. And sometimes we have guests stop by and tell us their favorite bony tales. Check out Anything Bones on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever your little heart desires. We release new episodes every Saturday. Bone Voyage. I watched lots of documentaries, read hundreds of articles to prepare for this case, and I also read a book, Murder World Scotland, The Faces of Bible John, The Hunt for a Scottish Serial Killer by Steve McGregor. In the book, not only does it talk extensively about the case, but it also gives a lot of important background to the setting of this case in the city of Glasgow. Highly recommend the book, an easy read, quick read, and it was very helpful in my research. To open up this case for us, let's talk first about the city we will be finding ourselves in, and that is, of course, Glasgow, Scotland. The time period we are in is the 1960s. The city was re-emerging after the war and experiencing all kinds of problems. Economic decline, unemployment, slum housing, poor health care, and an uptick in gang activity as well as heightened crime. According to the Herald Scotland, quote, In the 1950s, the murder rate has been roughly similar throughout Great Britain, but in the 1960s, the rates diverged, with Scotland experiencing a much higher rate than her southern neighbors. Glasgow played an unviable role in all of this, and even as late in the mid-1990s, while there are 1.85 homicides in Edinburgh, per 100,000 of the city's population, and 2.17 homicides in London per 100,000, the rate in Glasgow was 4.99, end quote. Despite this, Glasgow soon felt the swing and the surge of the 60s. They felt growth. They were apprehensively looking forward to make a change for the better. For these cases that I cover, especially if it's an area I've never covered before or that I'm not familiar with, I love to learn the history of the place and I love looking at pictures to kind of get my mind wrapped around where I'm talking about and familiarize myself with the area. 
through this episode, I've never been to Scotland. It's a dream of mine to go and I would love to go someday, but I haven't been yet. Anyways, for this episode, I wasn't familiar with Glasgow and I looked up pictures and in the 60s, it's a very quaint city. It looks very peaceful. There's a trolley that went down the road, hustle and bustle of city life. Uh, the pictures that I saw showcase the lovely architecture of the old buildings, the beautiful Glasgow Cathedral, the lampposts, the double-decker buses, the cobblestone streets. You have all that and all of those lovely sights. And then you look a little further and you see the pile of rubble or a ruin of a building that had been destroyed or a deserted store. You see the beauty of the city and then you see remnants of the hard times where everyone was stricken with poverty. But now it's almost like a blanket covered the city again. It hit all that and they had a brief moment of happy times, of carefree times. However, that would not last long. All of the carefree ways of the time came crashing down. Now, it's the late 1960s, 1968, 1969, and now the sitting of the city is growing bleak and fearful, cowering in the shadows at an unknown force, picking the people off one by one. At a time that the world needed these clubs and dancing and carefree atmosphere to recover from the brutal war, instead, the city of Glasgow had a serial killer. February 23rd, 1968, a body is discovered that is thought to have been the beginning of a trio of murders that are attributed to Bible John, and that is a young woman named Patricia Docker, who went by the nickname of Pat. She was only 25. Let's talk a little bit about Pat. Pat Docker was a beautiful woman. She was petite at five foot three inches tall. She was brunette and she had loving hazel eyes. At the time of this case, Pat was married, but separated from her husband, Alex, and living with her four-year-old son. Alex was a corporal in the RAF and was serving at the RAF Digby in Lincolnshire. After the separation, Pat and her son moved back to her childhood home in Glasgow with her parents until she got back on her feet and figured out her next moves. The home was at 29 Langslide Place near Queen's Park, and while they lived there, Pat worked as an auxiliary nurse at the Kirk Hospital in Renfrewshire, and her, hus- her parents excuse me, watched her son while she worked. Pat worked the night shift from 10 p.m. to the following morning at 8, and her days off were every other Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Pat was a loving and doting mother and gave all she had to her son and to her job. She was going to make this work. She wanted to save enough to get a home for her and her son and to get the two of them back on their feet. She was ready for change, and she was determined. She worked long and late hours and never had time to herself being a single working mom. One day, her parents noticed how tired and run down she was after a long night of work, and they told her that they would watch her son, and she needed to take the night off. She had the night off of work that night, and so just take the night off, leave the house, do whatever you wish. And as a fellow mother of small children, when someone offers to watch the kids while you take an uninterrupted evening off, you do it. You jump at it. We love our kids, don't get me wrong, but everyone needs a little me time. And Pat was no exception. She decided she was going to go with her friends to a club. It was the 1960s. That's what you did back then. You drank, you danced, you met new and exciting people. So February 22nd, 1968, on a Thursday evening, Pat left her childhood home. She was wearing a lovely yellow knitted dress and had a big duffel coat that had a blue fur collar over it in case the weather grew cold. She carried a brown handbag, a wristwatch, and wore a wedding ring that had belonged to her grandmother. 
Her brunette hair was cut in the popular bob fashion of the time, and she told her parents that she was going to go meet some of her friends at a nearby club, the Majestic Ballroom. Which, isn't that just such a lovely name for a club? I absolutely love it. The Majestic Ballroom, which was known to the locals as the Magic Stick, was located on Hope Street, and it was in the center of the city. Pat met with the, met up with her friends there, and they listened to the resident band Dr. Croc and his Crackpots perform several songs. But as the evening drew on and the Majestic Ballroom was preparing to close around 10, Pat decided she hadn't had enough and she wanted to soak up as much of this carefree, child-free night as she could before heading back home. So she said goodbye to her friends. I'm not sure if they were just ready to be done and go home or if they just had decided to part ways. But either way, Pat went on alone to another club without them. The other club she went to was called the Barrowland Ballroom. This particular club closed at midnight so she could enjoy a couple more hours before heading back. Now, I want to give you a bit of information, a bit of background into the Barrowland Ballroom before we go any further. In the 1800s, the Barrowland got its name from the East City Center of Glasgow, bringing in an influx of people looking to sell secondhand goods. The merchants would come into the city, bring in their secondhand goods on a wooden cart, and then they would set up a makeshift market in the city to sell their goods, kind of like a farmer's market. These hand carts were known as barras or barrows, and the market they would set up in grew to be called the Barrowlands. So first, they sold secondhand goods, and then a flea market was held there. And then it expanded to where, according to the book Murder World Scotland, it grew to become the largest open-air market in Europe. A few years later, a wealthy couple, the MacGyvers, purchased the land and then set up stalls for the people to sit up at. And eventually, they decided to enclose the area and build a ballroom on the second floor. So first floor, shop stalls. Second floor, ballroom. <laughs> Business downstairs, party upstairs. And you guessed it, that's where it became known as the Barrowland Ballroom. Now, sadly, the original Barrowland Ballroom was destroyed in a fire. But the MacGyver family rebuilt the building in 1960, and it turned out absolutely lovely. I read, too, that the floor was done in a crisscross pattern, and that the floor had tennis ball cut in half and placed underneath the floor to make the flooring soft and have an extra bit of spring in the step for those dancing, and I think that is just absolutely delightful. The revamped Barrowland Ballroom really took off, as dance halls were a very important part to the UK's entertainment and industry. A fact about dance halls is that according to a newspaper survey at the time that the ballroom was at her peak, 70% of couples admitted that they met their spouse at a dance hall. It's the perfect place to literally bump into your future significant other, or at least to experience a little fling, which ballrooms were known for at the time. So this place had the reputation at the time that Pat visited that night. Remember, she started off at the Majestic Ballroom, and then she went to the Barrowland Ballroom to extend her night. Also, one event happening that night at the Barrowland that might have caught her eye were the Palaya's Night, or the Ages 25 on Up Night. This club, specifically from 8 to midnight, only admitted adults from the ages of 25 on up. Now, this happened every other Thursday and Saturday, and this night was known as the Grab-A-Granny Night, <laughs> which how absolutely adorable. Uh, but the spelling is P-A-L-A-I-S, Palias, Palias Night, uh, or Grab-A-Granny. It's easier to say Grab-A-Granny. <laughs> Witnesses who saw Pat that night, she was seen here. They recalled her dancing with several male partners throughout the night, 
and they even caught sight of her dancing with a certain red-haired gentleman. The dancing concluded a half hour to midnight at 11.30, and at midnight the ballroom was quiet, everyone had gone home. But when Pat didn't arrive back at home, her parents assumed she was spending the night with a friend, and they went to sleep with no worries as to her whereabouts. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. Unfortunately, Pat would be found the next day only a quarter of a mile away from her parents' front door, only a quarter of a mile away from safety and away from her waiting family. Pat's nude body was discovered by a man, Maurice Goodman, who was walking along a path on Carmichael Lane the morning of February 23rd on his way to work. At first glance, the man saw that the body belonged, he thought that the body belonged to an unfortunate homeless man. Sadly, it was very common in Scotland for the homeless to pass away during the bitter cold nights of winter. They had nowhere to go and they had to spend their nights in the elements. And that morning specifically, the ground had a layer of frost on it. But looking closer, Maurice Goodman realized he wasn't looking at a homeless man, but at a young woman who looked bruised and battered. He notified the police immediately. The first two detectives on scene were traffic policemen Detective Sergeant Andrew Johnstone and Detective Constable Norman MacDonald. Detective MacDonald said, quote, There had been a heavy frost that night. We arrived about 8.10 a.m. and stopped the car over at the Overdale Street end of the lane. The body was lying with the head towards us. Initially, I thought it was a man because of the thin build, but when I got closer, I could see it was a female. She was completely naked and there was no signs of her clothing. She was lying on her back with the head turned to the right. End quote. The scene wasn't secured for another hour. When noticing the woman's body, they made note of the woman lying on her back, nude except for one shoe still on her foot, and her clothes were gone. Her handbag was gone too with her ID, so they had no immediate way to identify her. When the police pathologist arrived, he surmised based on the rigor mortis that she had been lying there dead for several hours. She had suffered from extensive blunt force trauma to her face, which left cuts and bruises, and she had been strangled to death by some type of ligature as marks by her neck showed. Later, the pathologist would surmise the ligatures wasn't discovered. Since the ligature wasn't discovered on the scene, the ligature must have been a belt that the perpetrator took off himself, used on the victim, and then took back with him. Right away, investigators believed this to be a murder. Lying next to her body was Pat's sanitary pad or her tampon or uh, uh, period pad as she was menstruating when she was killed. Obviously, the killer had taken it out before he had attempted to sexually assault her. But specifically, the act of leaving the sanitary pad there by her body deliberately shows that he left it there for some reason or some purpose unbeknownst to us. Also, she was the only known victim of Bible John who was not believed to have been sexually assaulted, 
while the other two victims were. They started canvassing the surrounding area to see if they could talk to any other witnesses or ear witnesses who might have heard something. They did find one woman who said to have heard a woman shout, leave me alone, leave me alone, in the early hours of the morning. But not much else came from this early canvassing of the neighborhood. This was all they had. Later, en route to the hospital, the emergency responders alerted the investigators that they recognized this woman. This was Patricia Docker, a nurse at the Mearnskirk Hospital. Back at Pat's home, her father was reading the morning paper, and he read about the unidentified woman found dead along the path, and he remarked how close it was to their home. At this point, they had no idea that this was their daughter's body that had been discovered, which... That just makes me so sad. I just feel so bad for the family. Eventually, the parents were alerted, and the next day, her body was positively identified by her father at the morgue. When they started questioning Pat's father, John Wilson, they wanted to just try and pinpoint her last few hours. John Wilson told them of Pat's plans to go to the Majestic Ballroom with some of her friends. Unfortunately, this is where there are several issues in the investigation, you see, John Wilson didn't know that Pat had went on to the Barrowland Ballroom until a few days later. And by then, when investigators went to the Barrowland Ballroom to talk to witnesses, everyone's memories just weren't as sharp as they would have been days prior. Remember, it's a popular ballroom, and it was very crowded at this particular event, the Over 25 event. So she didn't stick out to too many people, but there were a few, like I said, who did remember her dancing with a red-haired stranger. Investigators immediately took note of that. No one saw her leave the ballroom, though, with the red-haired man, but it was assumed after they failed to catch a cab driver that maybe he might have offered to give her a lift home. Maybe the red-haired man gave her a lift. Maybe, under the ruse of offering her a ride home since the weather was particularly cold that night. Her brown handbag and a bracelet she was wearing would eventually be found as divers scoured the White Cartwater River close to where her body was found. But her dress, coat, and underclothes were never found. Her watch was found, though, not far from her body. And of course, this, this leaves several questions. Why would he keep her clothes with him? Was it as some sort of a trophy or memento? Or did he destroy them later for fear they might get recognized someday? Or was there blood or other incriminating evidence left on her clothing that he was worried about? What did the handbag and bracelet do like why was it in the water why did the handbag and the bracelet get dumped in the river but not the clothes did he think the leather handbag would hide the fingerprints that could id him did he strangle pat with her brown handbag strap or did he lose use a ligature like did he use her handbag strap or a belt let's say now was he that diabolical of a planner all those questions that i have are pretty general and if it, if it's okay if he was a diabolical planner and he managed to remember all of these little things that could id him remember all of like take all the precautions that he did if if he was it surprises me that this was the first time he is killed it seems that he thought of what could happen and got rid of the evidence. Like, he 100% was on top of it all. And I'm not a professional, obviously. These were just some thoughts that I had while researching this case. I want to know what you think. What do you? Th why do you think he removed everything on her? 
Now, the investigators were not able to pull any fingerprints off of what was found in the river, and zero prints were recovered from the crime scene. Also, why were those items taken from her body and hidden, deliberately hidden, but why did he leave her sanitary towel beside her body? Did it weirdly symbolize something for him? Did he leave it there in disgust or embarrassment for some reason? Like, in his mind, she was unclean because of this? I have so many questions. Of course, as they always do, and with good reason most of the time, investigators first had their eye on Pat's estranged husband, Alex. After all, they were living separately. There was a young child involved. Maybe it got messy. But he had an airtight alibi and was ruled out rather quickly. Sadly, with no evidence found at the scene, no witnesses, no solid leads, the investigation quickly slowed down and the police were stumped. That is, until another life was taken and the killer struck again at the Barrowland Ballroom 18 months later. Jemima McDonald was a 32-year-old woman and mother of a 12-year-old daughter and a 7- and 9-year-old sons. Her friends and family nicknamed her Mima. She lived at an apartment building at 15 McKeith Street in Bridgeton. She was a lovely woman, and she too loved to dance, and found herself at the Barrowland Ballroom on August 16, 1969. The ballroom was not far from her home, only a mile away, and it was a place she calmly found herself. Her sister Margaret had agreed to stay and watch her kids for her while she enjoyed the night out. It was the third consecutive night that Mima had gone out dancing. She'd gone out Thursday and Friday night, and now we've arrived at Saturday night. Mima dropped her kids off with Margaret and chatted with her for a few minutes. She still had her hair up in curlers with a headscarf over them, and she told Margaret that she was going to leave the curlers in her hair for as long as possible, basically until she arrived at the ballroom so she could have fresh, intact curls for the evening. She was wearing a, quote, black pinafore dress, white blouse, off-white slingback shoes, and a warm brown coat, end quote. Before going to the ballroom, Mima went to a pub called Betty's Bar. It was only a few feet from the ballroom, and I read that the ballroom didn't serve alcohol at the time, so patrons would first go to the bars, and then they would go to the ballrooms next. Witnesses at Betty's Bar later state that they saw her at the bar, and she was talking to a man with red hair. The man was slim-billed, tall, and was dressed in a black suit. Mima then went to the ballroom, and witnesses there stated that she danced with this red-haired man in the suit. The red-haired man in his suit. Even though there was an estimated 2,000 people in attendance that night, Mima and this red-haired stranger were still seen. The witnesses said that this man stuck out to them because everyone else attending was dressed more casually. That he was wearing a black suit with a white shirt, and one witness even said that he had hand-stitched lapels. They also said that his hair was uncharacteristically short for the times, as other men had longer hair. So this guy's short hair really stuck out. Even though he stuck out like a sore thumb to so many people that night, no one had remembered seeing him there before. He was a stranger. Mima and the stranger left together late that night. The last time anyone saw them was on London Road at about 12.30 a.m. before turning to cut across Landistry Street. After Landistry Street, all they would have had to do then is cross James Street, and then they were on McKeith Street, which is the road that Mima's flat was located. They were so close. Mima was so close to safety again. 
yet Mima never made it home. It's so ominous to me to think that she was literally one or two streets away. She was probably so close that maybe she could see her flat, see her safe place. Imagine her kids there, her sister there, but she didn't make it there because she was stopped and attacked by this man. Sunday morning came, and Margaret was very worried when Mima didn't answer her door as she was knocking. She hadn't said anything about plans to be away for another day. Why had she not come home that night? Later in the day, she heard some kids talking together, and she kind of like listened in. These kids were talking about seeing a dead body at an abandoned building nearby. Margaret knew that building. It was only about a hundred feet from her flat. At night, the homeless were known to occasionally take up residence there, and it was also seen as a place for sex workers to take clients there for privacy. During the day, however, it was a playground for the children of the area, a hangout or a clubhouse, if you will. Remember, back then, it wasn't how it is now, different times. Kids just had to be back when it was dark. Other than that, the the rules, there weren't many rules. There weren't many stranger danger rules mentality. The kids would just go out and find what they wanted to play with. Margaret, though, when she heard this, I'm sure, I'm sure she got a pit in her stomach. She waited all day Sunday, just praying for her sister to walk in the door safe and sound. But by Monday morning, she had begun to fear the worst. Margaret wasn't the only one to hear the rumors of a body found in that building. Other people in the neighborhood started gathering as well. Margaret decided, you know, enough is enough. I have to go check it out. Can you imagine what that walk was like from her flat to the abandoned flat? I mean, especially like seeing the crowds gathering at that abandoned flat, just knowing that they're probably looking at a dead body and in your heart, maybe deep down knowing that it's Mima, but praying that it's not, praying that, you know, she's just stayed with friends and she forgot to let you know what was going on. No, it couldn't be Mima. Mima had just gone out dancing. I just saw her. She's fine. She has to be fine. But when Margaret looked at the now crowd of people gathering, at first, when she looked at what they were looking at, she thought she was looking at a mannequin lying there. Maybe it's someone had swiped a mannequin from a storefront. But no. As she looked closer, she recognized the black pinafore dress her sister was wearing, and Margaret realized that lying there bruised, bloody, and dead was her sister, Mima. The scene was not properly blocked off right away. Honestly, a running theme in this case. In addition to the crowd of people going close to the body, someone had also attempted to move the body to identify the person, compromising the crime scene and any evidence that could have been left. A difference between this case and Pat's crime scene is Mima was found fully clothed, but she had her stockings and her shoes off beside of her. The only thing missing from the scene was her leather handbag and her headscarf. Remember, she was going to keep the headscarf over her curlers until the last possible minute so that the curlers or the curls would be intact. However, similarly to Pat's scene, eerily similar, Mima was also menstruating at the time that she was killed, and her sanitary pad was also lying beside her body. An autopsy confirmed, sadly, that she had been raped, and she had been beaten with the beatings, with the beatings concentrating on her face, and she had been strangled to death with one of her own stockings sometime early morning 
Saturday morning. So if the last time she was seen with the red-haired man was 12.30, very shortly after she had gotten out of eyesight of that witness, she'd be murdered. There was one person who police talked to when they were canvassing the area that thought that, thought that they might have seen a woman who resembled Mina outside that abandoned flat at 12.40 talking to a man, but they couldn't be sure who it was. They couldn't be sure that it was Mina exactly. Another person police talked to said that they heard a woman screaming that night, but that they weren't sure precisely what time it was. Around this time, this is when they retraced her steps to the Bearland Ballroom and also to the bar to talk to witnesses there. Police almost immediately picked up on the similarities between Mima and Pat's case, stating, quote, There are one or two similarities between both murders. I cannot say more that po- I cannot say more on that point at the moment. End quote. Obviously, they're wanting to keep certain things out of the press. They're wanting to keep some stuff secret and kind of like on the back burner so that they could have the upper hand when they started interrogating suspects. Investigators surmised that the killer had a good geographical knowledge of the area. The killer seemed to know which areas to frequent and what streets to walk. Yet how could this be when so many people didn't know him? Did he keep to himself? Well, we know he didn't because he picked up women at the Barrowland Ballroom and he met them in bars like these were his hunting grounds. Someone who keeps to themselves, in my opinion, wouldn't put themselves out there like that. Unless maybe he had just moved there. Was he a newcomer? The theory that maybe he was a stranger just passing through became the most prevalent in investigators' minds. It would then make sense why no one recognized him at these places and why no one knew him or recognized him by the sketch. Speaking about that sketch, about a week after Mima was found, nothing really was happening. There was nothing really just coming for police to go on. So they tried to work on a sketch that they could release. So many people had seen him. So many people had described him. Yet no one knew or recognized him from anywhere else. Police had to get his picture out. But it hadn't been done before in Scotland. He was thought of as being between the ages of 25 and 35. And according to different witnesses, he had either sandy hair, red hair or auburn hair, or dark hair. He was pale, very tall, and one witness swore he must have been over six feet tall. Detective Chief Superintendent Tom Goodall of the Glasgow Police went to George Lennox Patterson, who was the deputy director of Glasgow's School of Art, and presented him with all of the characteristics described by these witnesses and asked and asked and asked to George Lennox Patterson to produce a sketch. Now he did. And the sketch was released on August 26th, 10 days after Mima was murdered. I will, of course, release the sketch on social media for you to check out. But it is a very distinct face that this sketch recreates of the suspect. Side note, this summer, <laughs> I am hoping to get the chance to revamp my Addicted to Crime website a bit so that I can include pictures and sources for each episode on its own distinct page. So for instance, if you go on the website in the future and want to see the Bible John episode, you click on it, you click on the Bible John episode, you would have access to my sources as well as pictures or anything else I want to include on that page. So that's my goal. I want to have that done by the end of this summer. We'll see if I can get it, but that's my plan. 
And the reason I mentioned that is it would be awesome to listen to this episode and as you're listening, be able to look at the pictures. Like that's my dream. It'll, it'll come someday. All right. Side note done. Even though the sketch was circulating and even though it was reaching thousands of people, no one came forward claiming to know the man. Jemima McDonald's family announced that they were offering a hundred pounds, which in 1969 was a lot of money. That translates to around 1,518 pounds. They were not that well off of a family and they scrimped together to get that much, but they did all they could to find out what happened to their daughter. However, again, despite that sketch and despite the reward, no real leads came of it. Two months later, the killer struck again. Detectives tried to do some undercover work in the Barrowland Ballroom by staging male and female officers in there to see if they could spot the man from the sketch. You know, maybe he'd come back to pick another victim. He already had done that twice, but he never did. Or else they never saw him. And they stopped the surveillance at the Barrowland in October 1969. The third and final victim was a young woman named Helen Puttock. She too had young children and she loved dancing and wanted to go to the ballroom on October 30th, 1969. Did you catch the date? Remember I said the last few days of October, police had just ended their surveillance of the ballroom in October? Is that a coincidence? Did the killer know that they had stopped surveillance somehow? And that he would be safe? Who knows? But it's just crazy to think that police just ended surveillance at the ballroom before he struck again. So Helen was 29 years old. She had two sons. One was five years old and the other one was just one years old. Her husband George was a serviceman. And when he was away, Helen and her two sons lived with her mother at 129 Early Street west of the city center. Helen had traveled with her husband, George, for his serviceman postings in the past. But, you know, she soon soon grew tired of moving from place to place. It's hard with kids. And she often felt isolated. And that is when the decision to move her and the boys to her mother's in Glasgow was made. This particular evening in October, her husband happened to be home during one of his leaves. And Helen told him that she wanted to go dancing with her older sister, Jeannie Langford. Now, George wasn't too keen on the idea at first. He was kind of old-fashioned. He thought it seemed odd for a married woman to go dancing without her husband. And that kind of made me think, you know, like, why not go with her? Like, she wants to go dancing. Go away together. You're on your leave. Go with her. But that didn't happen. And Helen assured him, you know, no, it's not weird. I just want to go with my sister and enjoy the night with her. Then I'll come back home. I won't stay out late. So maybe that's why he didn't offer to go with her, you know, because it was supposed to be like a sister outing. But either way, George reluctantly agreed and gave her 10 shillings for her to catch a ride back with a, on a taxi from the ballroom. Helen and Jeannie left at eight. And as she left, Helen reassured George again, don't worry, we'll be fine, we'll be safe and I won't be out too late. Helen and Jeannie went to a few pubs on the way and met up with two other friends at Trader's Tavern, and the four of them went to the Barrowland for the over 25s night. Jeannie and Helen both danced with two different men at the ballroom, and both of the men said that their name was John. Jeannie's John said that he was from the Castle Milk area, but that was really all the information that he gave her. It kind of seemed to Jeannie that he wanted to remain anonymous, and that wasn't unusual for that area, as the area did have some people who cheated on their spouses and kind of meant their flings there, and of course didn't want their name associated with the ballroom. 
Holland's John was a tall, slim man who, according to Jeannie, was suave and a little sophisticated. And Jeannie said, quote, I don't believe either of them were called John. In fact, the man I was dancing with was first to introduce himself to the others. When it came to Helen's partner, he seemed to pause for a second or two before giving his name as John. He seemed a bit apprehensive, and it was the only time I saw him look less than confident because he seemed so certain of himself in every other way, end quote. There was an instance that happened as the four of them, Jeannie's John, Helen's John, Helen, and Jeannie, were getting ready to leave the ballroom. So the four of them stopped at a vending machine to get some cigarettes. The money, two shillings, was inserted into the machine, but the machine didn't dispense the cigarettes. Like, nothing happened. Well, Helen's John got angry. He demanded to speak to the manager of the building. Like, he literally went full Karen on him, if you know what I mean. Jeannie said about this awkward uh, incident in a statement later. She said, quote, He wasn't outraged or shouting. He was collected and very calm, but very assertive. It was like a school teacher speaking to a young child. He was giving the manager a real dressing down. I expected him to get a good hiding for the way he spoke to the manager, but to my surprise, nothing happened, and the manager seemed to back off, end quote. So this mini-crisis was averted when the manager assured them that, you know, I'll give Jeannie the two shillings back, but I can't do that tonight. There's no more cash left in the tills. Come back tomorrow morning when the ballroom opens again, and then I will give you the two-shilling refund then. As the four of them were walking away from this very uncomfortable encounter, Jeannie said that she remembers hearing Helen and her, air quotes, John, talking about the encounter with the manager. And John made the comment, my father says these places are dens of iniquity, which is just really random, kind of judgmental to say. And also, you're here too, my guy. Like, why are we pointing fingers if this is a den of iniquity? Like, you're here too, Okay. When the four left the ballroom, Jeannie's John, the one from Castle Milk, left, going on a different route, while Jeannie, Helen, and Helen's John hailed a cab. Jeannie would later mention that the man, Helen's John, seemed annoyed, kind of seemed tense when Jeannie got into the cab with them, like he was hoping that he'd have some alone time with Helen and that Jeannie would kind of leave them alone. To ease up on the tension, though, and to get rid of the awkward silence, Jeannie started asking him questions about his life. This man vaguely answered some questions and kind of seemed to downright ignore her questions in other instances. The little information he did give, according to the book Murder World Scotland, was that he liked golfing, his family owned a caravan in Irving, and he was fostered when he was young. Sensing that he was starting to ease up slightly, Jeannie then asked him if he liked dancing. But then he immediately grew cold again and said that the thought of married women going out to ballrooms was outrageous and plain disrespectful and mentioned his hatred for adulterous women, which, you know, read the room, dude. Like, how awkward. I can't imagine being Jeannie and Helen in that minute. Like, okay, like, what are you calling me? Like, okay, this is so awkward. I hope the taxi hurries up and we can get rid of this guy. But again, trying to clear the tension, like Jeannie was doing the whole night, Jeannie asked if this man had any plans for New Year's. And he said that he didn't drink, but that he would spend the time in prayer. When the car got to Earl Street, the book details how Jeannie had thought that Helen and John would both get out there to head back to Helen's home. As John mentioned, he would escort her to the door. But John spoke up then and said, you know, how about instead we go drop you off, Jeannie, at your home? And then we could come back and I can drop Helen off. 
which now, as we're looking at this in hindsight, that seems so sketchy and suspicious to us. Like, in my head, I'm pleading with Jeannie, no, no, stay with Helen. This guy has red flags up the wazoo. Do not leave her with him. And I am sure that every day since Jeannie made that decision that she's regretted it. But Jeannie agreed. So the taxi dropped Jeannie off at Keslow Street. And then the taxi turned around and drove Helen and John back to Earl Street. The taxi driver said in a statement to police that he brought the two of them to 95 Earl Street. And Helen's home was at 129 Earl Street, extremely close to Helen's front door. The taxi driver said that the two of them paid their fare and then they got out and started walking in the direction of Helen's home and that the time was about 12.30 to 12.45. Later on, around 2 a.m., that same unidentified man who had called himself John hailed a service bus. When he got on the bus, there were other passengers and his appearance made them look twice. They said that he looked like he had been in a fight. He looked disheveled and his jacket had mud on it and he had a scratch under one of his eyes. This man rode the bus only a few blocks away and then got off at the junction of Dumberton Road and Derby Street. The next morning, around 7.30 in the morning, a man who lived at 95 Earl Street, Archibald McIntyre, took his dog out in the flat's fenced-in backyard. The dog immediately went and sniffed something lying in the grass, and at first it looked to Archibald McIntyre like it might have been a pile of rags left outside. But when he got closer, he realized that it was the bloody body of a woman. He called the police, they got there immediately, and the police immediately tried to tape off the scene and set up an incident caravan to start investigating. The woman, whom we know was Helen, had been stripped and was only partially naked, and her face had been so badly beaten that she was barely recognizable. She had been strangled with her own nylon stockings, and they were still tightly bound around her neck. She, like Jemima and like Patricia, was also menstruating at the time of her death, and her sanitary pad had been pulled out and was placed under her armpit. As they were doing their investigating, and this hurts my soul, Helen's husband, George Puddock, pulled up to the caravan, asking if they had seen his wife. He described her to them, what she was wearing, and when the officer realized that they were talking to the dead woman's husband, they put their hand on George's shoulder and said, quote, I'm sorry, son, your wife has been murdered, end quote. Later on, a full autopsy was done on Helen, and it was confirmed that sadly Helen had been raped, and there were even bite marks found on her body. Later on, of course, after speaking with Jeannie and getting his description, they got that full story of the ballroom events, and they had to talk with that taxi driver who told them where they had seen where he had seen the pair get off, what time, and then of course they retraced those steps back to the ballroom to try and talk to other witnesses there to corroborate Jeannie's story. The bouncers at the ballroom, though, said that the man did not have red hair. He had black hair, despite Jeannie telling the police the man had red hair. Jeannie still insisted that the bouncers were wrong and it was red. She also said that he was around 5 foot 10 and had front overlapping teeth. The front two were crooked slightly and a tooth on the upper right side was missing. She also said that he, spoke, he smoked embassy cigarettes. She also told police that during the talk in the taxi, he said his name was John Templeton or John Sempleton. She couldn't recall correctly. 
Jeannie also stated, in addition to what I told you already, that Bible John, who he would be nicknamed as, often quoted from the Old Testament during their conversation. The Glasgow Herald released this description of the man, quote, A man aged between 25 and 30, 5 foot 10 and tall of medium build, with light auburn hair, styled short and brushed to the right. He had gray-blue eyes, blue-gray eyes, nice straight teeth with one tooth on the upper right jaw overlapping the next tooth, fine features, and is generally of smart modern appearance. He is dressed in brownish flecked single-breasted suit, the jacket of which has three or four buttons and high lapels. He has a knee-length brownish coat of tweed or garbanine, a light blue shirt, and a dark tie with red diagonal stripes, end quote. Now, John Quinn, a crime reporter for the Evening Times, is the one credited with coming up with the nickname Bible John. When asked about it, he said, quote, I did not do it, as was later said in some books on the subject, as a flair for the dramatic. I did it merely as a seemingly perfect tag to jog the memory of those whose paths may have crossed with the dapper dancer of death who made criminal, hi criminal history by being the first man to have an identikit picture issued with the approval of the Scottish office, end quote. So he's saying, you know, I didn't come up with the nickname Bible John to be dramatic. I came up with it maybe to the fact that he referred to himself as John and the fact that he quoted the Bible. Maybe this would jog the memory of someone they might have talked to. Jeannie was showing the painting of the sketch of Jemima McDonald's killer, and as she saw that painting, she positively confirmed him as the same man who left with Helen that night, positively tying Jemima McDonald's case and Helen's case together. The media went ballistic, and they printed headlines that said, quote, Bible-quoting man sought by murder hunt police, and, quote, the dance hall Don Juan with murder on his mind, end quote, just to name a few. Detective Superintendent Joe Beatty said of the man, quote, I am positive this man comes from Glasgow or nearby. I do not think he is a religious man, but just has a normal intellectual working knowledge of the Bible that he likes to air, end quote. The police really did exhaust every avenue to find Bible John. They knew the man had a short haircut, so they showed his sketch to all the barbers in the area. They talked to all the dentists in the area who might recognize his two crooked front teeth and have x-rays they could look at. They talked to people at the ballroom. They talked to the taxi driver. They talked to the service bus driver and those on the bus at that 2 a.m. time when Bible John had finished murdering Helen and had taken a bus. They wondered if maybe Bible John was a serviceman. So they sent his sketch everywhere and had it circulating the British Army bases and the Royal Navy ships and the bases around the world. They looked into NATO and British military records to see if anything aligned. They spoke to different tailors around the city, asking if they recognized that brown-flecked, single-breasted suit Bible John had worn. Bible John had mentioned that he enjoyed golf courses, so they visited all the local courses and showed his sketch there. They looked also into all the local churches. You know, he quoted scripture fluently. Maybe Bible John was part of a local congregation, but he wasn't. A psychic was even brought in to help as a last resort, but even them, they didn't provide any useful information to the police. They also sent Bible John's sketch and description to Hong Kong and to America. Police took over 50,000 witness statements, and they interviewed thousands of men, and one by one eliminated different men from their list of potential suspects. None of them fit the bill. Jeannie Langford kept attending the lineups, hoping that one day she would see this Bible John behind the glass, but she never did. After years of investigating, the police finally had to stop. 
They had expanded their resources, and despite all of the work and effort by the Glasgow City Police, they just had to stop. Detective Superintendent Joe Beatty said in a 1972 interview, quote, It is quite incredible that this man has eluded us. There must be many people who know someone who looks like this artist's impression, end quote. Then, four years later, during his retirement speech, Joe Beatty spoke about Bible John again, saying, quote, Sometimes you get the ones you shouldn't get and don't get the ones you should. This was one we should have got. We knew so much about him. There he was with a short haircut, his meticulous dress style, the patronizing manner he had towards women. I guess he lived west of a line from Sterling to Lanark. He was either a serviceman or an ex-serviceman, end quote. A little bit of information about the department. After this, the Glasgow City Police, they merged with the Strathclyde Police and then it merged again to be a single Scottish police force, Police Scotland, in 2013. The Police Scotland spoke on the Bible John case in 2018 and said, quote, The murders of Helen Puddock, Jemima MacDonald, and Patricia Docker remain unsolved. However, as with unresolved cases, they are subject to review and any new information about their deaths will be investigated, end quote. Over the years, there have been a fair amount of people who were thought of to be suspects. Maybe they were the Bible John murder. Now, I want to go into most of them now and let's dissect this and see if they can be or if they can't be. Now, I'm not going to go super into depth into all of them at all. But as much as they have to do with the case we covered and their proximity, that's what we're going to talk about. First, we have John White. Now, John Brown or John White had reportedly been interrogated by police, and he allegedly bore a striking resemblance to the Bible John sketch. He also was found out to have lied to the police. He stated his name first was John White, but later we found out that his name was actually John Edgar, and he was from the Gorbals. The only thing differentiating John White uh, to the police is that police said his teeth didn't look crooked, like in the description that Jeannie Langford gave. His age lines up. He was 27 in 1969, which would have been the right age in the age range of the suspected Bible John. He had even been arrested during an altercation at the Barrowland Ballroom in 1969 and said that he needed medical attention and had suffered a head injury from the fight that had broken out, you know, from that led to the arrest. But he had run away from police at the hospital and never got the medical attention he said he needed, which, you know, red flag. Like, why did he have to hide if he didn't want, you know, medical attention? Why did he ask for it? When his name started circulating as a possible suspect, this man offered up his DNA so that they could effectively rule him out. But this was never done. Now, why? I do not know. Like, he he could have just been so full of himself and his abilities, you know, thinking that he didn't leave any evidence on the bodies. He would never get caught. So narcissistic. Whatever. But even if you don't like let's at least test the DNA I don't know let's just definitively rule him out why don't we but they took this admission and they took this desire to share his DNA as proof that the real killer would never do that you know to save face and it couldn't be John White or John Edgar or whoever this guy was now another person who they suspected was another John so many Johns and this man's name was John Irvin McGinnis John Irvin McGinnis had a strong religious background. He was at the Barrowland Ballroom October 29th, 1969, which was the night before 
Helen met her mysterious John, and he did resemble the sketch. But in a lineup, Jeannie failed multiple times to identify him. And when asked point blank if this man was Bible John, she said it wasn't him. The ears and the teeth didn't match. And honestly, I had the altercation that I believe she would know. It's a very traumatizing night in your life. Like, I'm sure she has replayed the night countless times. Plus, they met at the bar and then spent all those hours at the ballroom and then the 20-minute taxi drive they took together. So it was enough time to get a good look at this guy. But what if you'd been having a few drinks? Police didn't find any clothing that even remotely matched what Bible John had worn the night of the murders. So this guy was thrown out as a suspect. John McInnes completed suicide in 1980. And however, as the years went by and DNA kept advancing, they realized they could sample this DNA found on Helen's body because there was some found and there was some preserved. They realized they could compare that DNA to John McInnes. His family agreed to test his DNA against the DNA found on the scene. You know, his family firmly believed that this would once and for all put a stop to the rumors and claim that he, in the claims, that he was Bible John and clear his name. The body was exhumed on February 2nd, 1996, and taken to the Glasgow University Medical Department. The testing was done, and the scientists stated that, quote, the results of these DNA analysis provide no evidence to suggest the semen stain or hair left near the body of Helen Puddock originated from John McGinnis, end quote. They also compared the bite mark to his teeth, and that was inconclusive, as John McGinnis had dentures. So the police ruled out John McGinnis, uh, John Irvin McGinnis as a suspect and told his family that all suspicion was being removed from him and he was not Bible John. Another suspect that looked good at the start and then finally got ruled out. Now, the next suspect we have to talk about very briefly is Peter Tobin. Now, I'm actually going to cover Peter Tobin in the next few weeks, months, whatever, possibly soon. I'm bumping it up on my list. I had him on my list, but he was further down, so I'm bumping him up so I could talk about him close to being in tangent with this episode. And in that episode, then we'll go into detail about him. So I won't go much into his background or anything here. Stay tuned for the episode on Peter Tobin. But for now, police looked at Peter Tobin as a suspect, and he is still in the public's mind one of the best suspects police had and have for the Bible John murders. Peter Tobin was on the sex offenders registry and had been convicted of a rape and assault of a woman. And in 2007, he was sentenced to life for the murder of Angelica Cluck in Edinburgh. He was also found guilty of the murders of Vicki Hamilton and Dina McNichol. And we will go into these murders, like I said, soon. He's a literal piece of garbage. He horrifically killed and assaulted these women. So we know at least that he has the capacity to kill. That is without question. And here are his ties to the Bible John murders. First, he lived in Glasgow during that time. He attended the Barrowland Ballroom during the 1960s. He even used an alias, John Semple, on occasion. Like, that's proven. He used that alias, John Semple, before. Which, I'm sorry, if you're not being shady, first off, why do you need an alias? I just don't understand that. Is it just mirrors or is that weird? But also, remember, Jeannie Langford said he might have used the name John Sempleton. And John Sempleton, John Semple, they're oddly close. Maybe she heard it wrong, or maybe he switched it up a bit and tried to adjust his alias a little bit so it wouldn't get back to him. 
Now, a book was written by David Ilson and Paul Harrison called The Lost British Serial Killer. Wow, I can't speak tonight. And in that book, the author points the finger at Peter Tobin as the killer. Two women came forward also later in the years and said that Peter Tobin was the one who acted aggressively with her in a ballroom. And another woman said that Peter Tobin sexually assaulted her at that same ballroom in 1968, which would have been the year before. What about his features? Now, a side-by-side of a young Peter Tobin and a Bible John sketch are eerily similar, and he had a front tooth removed. Why? Was it like, dent- like tooth problems? Or maybe it was to throw off the police looking for two crooked metal teeth. Also, Peter Tobin left Glasgow in the late 1969, and subsequently, that is when the Bible John murders also ended. So he's looking pretty good for Bible John. And there are people and there were people that swore up and down that the investigation is over. Peter Tobin's it. That's it. It's solved. However, there are a few things we should look at. First, we have his height. All descriptions of Bible John were that he was tall. But Peter Tobin is only 5'9". Not very tall, but that little fact of the height, like the discrepancy of the height, that's not extremely compelling in my opinion because I'm 5'3". I'm super short and everyone looks tall to me. So maybe the idea of calling someone tall, maybe that varies amongst different witnesses. So in my opinion, the height thing can be brushed off. The next is age. In 1969, Peter Tobin would have only been 23 But everyone thought Bible John was between the ages of 25 and 30. Again, in my mind, the age is another discrepancy that can be overlooked. It's close enough, but it is worth mentioning. No witnesses ever say Bible John had a scar, but Peter Tobin had a scar when he first met his wife in 1969. More compelling to me, though, are these facts. Jeannie Langford swears up and down that Peter Tobin is not the man who danced and rode home with Helen. Also, Peter Tobin was arrested as a suspect for burglaries and behind bars August 20th. So that means he could not have killed Mima McDonald, Jemima McDonald. Were there other killers, though? Did he kill the other women and not Mima? If so, extremely odd how similar the three cases are, especially with the sanitary towels. Honestly, in my opinion, too similar to have been separate killers in my mind. Now, of the possibility that her first husband could be Bible John, Peter Tobin's first wife, Margaret McIntosh, said, quote, In some ways, it would be convenient to learn he was Bible John, as he is behind bars, and it would give the families of the victims some closure. Tobin is a monster. I knew that then, and tragically, it's been proven to be true time and time again. Bible John must have been a monster, but I do not believe it is the same man, end quote. That's all that I'll talk about Peter Tobin for now. Again, I'm going to talk about him more in detail later on. Let's move on to suspect number four, Angus Sinclair. Angus Sinclair was another Scottish murderer. When he was only 16 in 1961, he sexually assaulted and killed a little seven-year-old girl named Catherine Greenhill. Horrific, horrific crime. He was found guilty of culpable homicide and sexual assault 
And during his sentencing, a judge said Sinclair was, quote, obsessed with sex and given the minimum opportunity, he will repeat these offenses irrespective of what promises he may give to the contrary, end quote. So that should have been the end of the story. He should have been locked up and had the key thrown away. After all, he killed and sexually assaulted a seven-year-old child. But that was not the end. Like, he killed and assaulted a child, but that is not the end of his story. Tragically, after serving only six years, six years for the murder and sexual assault of a child, he was released on parole. How did he get parole? Like, what parole board heard that story and thought, yep, yeah, let's release this guy. The judge says he'll probably do this again. Nah, he'll be fine. Let's release him. Yeah, like, I want to cover Angus Sinclair, honestly, on this podcast, but I really don't know if I can. I want to, but it's another one of those cases that really makes me so angry. So if I do, it's going to be a bit before I can cover him because my goodness, Like, are you feeling the frustration I'm feeling? Like, why, why did we let him go? Like, why, why? Like, what about him makes you think he can be let go? He killed a child. Anyways, after his release, there were four other women murdered in the area in 1977. Now, these four women were killed in a four-month time period. And some people think Angus Sinclair might have been responsible for these murders, but he was never officially charged. Now, he wasn't charged based on the fact that the Crown Prosecution Service says there wasn't enough evidence to charge him with them. So now that we've told you what an awful man he is and how he definitely could have done the awful crimes of Bible John, let's see how he fits as a suspect. Number one, he was living in Glasgow at the time. Two, his victims were also raped and strangled, and at least one of them was strangled with her own nylon stockings. Big, right? Well, we do have some red flags of him as a suspect. He was only five foot six and not tall in the slightest, and every one of Bible John's witnesses described him as tall. Again, to me, that's not super big because, in my opinion, height is relative. Next was hair. Now, he didn't have the red hair that Bible John was said to have had. He had curly, dark hair. Also, Angus Sinclair is usually, you know, he usually hid his victims' bodies while Bible John displayed them in the open. Bible John was proud of them. He wasn't ashamed of them at all. And finally, Angus Sinclair gagged and bound his victims while Bible John did not. Now, Angus Sinclair was truly evil. In addition to killing seven-year-old Catherine, he was found guilty of killing 17-year-old Mary Gallagher. And he was found guilty also in a court of law October 2014 for murdering two teenage girls, Christine Eadie and Helen Scott in Edinburgh in 1977. Not to mention those four other murders, you know, he might have committed. A horrible human. But Bible John, is he Bible John? I can't rule him out in my mind. I can't say it's him, but I can't rule him out because remember the bouncers said that the man who was with Jeannie Langford and Helen had dark hair. Maybe Jeannie Langford got that detail wrong. Something to keep in mind. 
Another theory that was thought of almost immediately after the three murders was that Bible John was actually a police officer. This would explain the haircut. This would explain how Bible John kept avoiding getting caught. This would explain how he knew the layout of the neighborhood and the streets, the dark alleys and backyards, how he knew those areas to do his dirty work. There are more compelling facts about this, though. The Maryland ballroom manager recognized the man who argued with him about that vending machine, who argued with him over those two shillings. The manager said that he was an undercover policeman who often frequented the ballroom. And did this man lie to the manager? Or was he actually an undercover policeman? I don't know. Other claims, such as the other John who was there that night, you know, the Castle Milk John, uh, Genie's John. There was also claims that he was also an undercover officer. And if he was, it's really interesting that the Castle Milk John or Genie's John never came forward to police after the death of Helen. Police extensively searched for this other John. So why didn't he come forward? Was he married? Did he want to hide the fact that he had been at the Barrowland Ballroom from his wife? Or did he have something more sinister to hide? Was he Bible John? Or was he working in cahoots with Bible John? More and more theories, honestly, pile on this ever-growing list of theories. Now, there is an author who wrote a book and highly contended that Bible John was a police officer, even stating that John Beatty knew it too, and he never said it, and was quieted by someone in law enforcement and silenced. But that has never been corroborated, and John Beatty was never known to shy away from saying what he thought, especially in this investigation. So if that's true, why didn't Joe, uh, Joe Beatty say his thoughts that it could have been a police officer? There is no evidence to say Bible John was not a police officer. But I also don't think there's enough evidence to say that he definitely was a police officer. So the jury is still out for me on that one. Other suspects are mentioned, such as Peter Sutcliffe, another piece of human garbage I want to go into more someday. And there is not enough evidence, in my opinion, that aligns him to be Bible John. There's too many things negating that, such as he had dark hair, he had a beard, or no, and he wasn't even in Glasgow at the time of the kill. So, buzzer no, not Peter Sutcliffe, in my opinion, that I am comfortable saying I am sure of. The book that I've been recommending this entire episode that I'm going to recommend, again, Murder World Scotland, builds a basic profile on Bible John. And I want to highlight the main points before we close the episode today. The first point, Bible John was from the Glasgow area. Some witnesses say he had a Glasgow accent. And the fact that he knew the area so well, I mean, that makes sense. Two, he worked at a white collar job. The book points out this because of his extensive vocabulary, his trimmed fingernails and smoothed hands, which was very common to people who worked white collar jobs back then, and the way he dressed and presented himself. Three, which kind of runs into number two, he was used to people doing what he asked. In a higher up white collar job, he would be used to ordering people around. Four, he used the Barrowland Ballroom to find victims. We really don't have to go into this. We know this to be true. Five, detailed knowledge of the Bible. Again, we don't have to go into this one either. We know this to be true also. All in all, quote, Bible John was a sexual sadist who vented a great deal of anger towards his victims and did not feel ashamed of his actions and who appears to have some knowledge of police procedure, end quote. His label would definitely be as an organized killer as defined by the FBI classification system. 
The definition of an organized serial killer is as follows. Organized criminals are antisocial, often psychopathic, but no right from wrong, are not insane and show no remorse. They have some degree of social grace, they may even be more charming, and often talk and seduce their victims into being captured. Organized killers are very difficult to apprehend because they go to inordinate lengths to cover their tracks and often are forensically savvy, meaning they are familiar with police investigation, end quote. Now, another point the books makes is, you guys, we can't be too entirely sure we know what Bible John looked like. Eyewitness testimony is never perfect. Sometimes it can be hairy. Your brain might fill in what you want it to, and it could be your imagination instead of what you actually saw. Did Jeannie Langford's brain fill in the missing details of her sister's killer from the sketch produced by Jemima's killer? Now, this would make sense why the bouncers at the ballroom say that Bible John had black hair or dark hair, not red hair like Jeannie claimed. She, according to her own testimony, had had a lot to drink before going to the ballroom. Can we count her as a reliable witness because of that? Could she be trusted to remember every single detail in the impaired state? Now, the Lennox Patterson painting has always been the face of Bible John throughout history. But we have to at least wonder to ourselves, what if it's not? What if we had had it wrong this entire time? What if we've been circulating the wrong picture? That would at least make sense, then, why no one has provided a substantial tip and why no one seems to truly know this person from the painting. Also, we have to ask ourselves, was there one Bible John who committed all these murders? Or were there separate killers? Three separate theoretical Bible Johns. Now, I believe that all of them, all three of the murders were committed by one killer. But the possibility of multiple killers has definitely floated around in history. If it is one killer, why did he stop after Helen's death? Was he frightened off of the attention? Did he leave the area? Did a major life event happen that caused him to stop? Did he die? What happened? I don't think we're ever going to know. I don't think it's even possible for us to ever know, short of a deathbed confession that somehow has some backbone to it. If the killer or killers are even still alive. Can you just imagine if the Bible John sketch really doesn't look anything like the real killer? Multiple witnesses said red hair, but many said dark hair or black hair. Many said tall, while others didn't specify the height. What if history has been looking for this man on this sketch when in all actuality, this is not the real killer? It definitely makes the mind, the mind wander, doesn't it? Now, in my opinion, I don't feel comfortable enough saying who could be Bible John, but I will say who I feel the closest on. I feel the closest that it could be Angus Sinclair. Again, I said the height thing is relative. Also, the bouncer said that the man had black hair and Angus Sinclair had black curly hair. Just my opinion, I think of all of the, at least of all of the suspects that I said today, Angus Sinclair is the closest. Now, the mystery of the Bible John murders is one that you really can just dive down a rabbit hole for and just never come up from. It makes me so sad to think that the the families of Patricia, Jemima, and Helen might never get justice for their loved ones. But you guys, let me know what you think. I am intrigued to know if you had an opinion coming into this episode and maybe it changed after the episode and why. 
You can email me your thoughts about this case at IamAddictedToCrime at gmail.com or on social media, whichever you like. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your support. I hope you enjoyed it. I did. I enjoyed it a lot. I just feel like my head is spinning and it's dizzy from spinning. I'm glad to be done with the Bible John black hole, though. And I'll be back soon with an historical mini-sode. And I'll be back in two weeks for the next main episode. Until then, I hope you stay safe. I hope you be kind to others. Bye-bye.